Hey guys, just before we jump into the episode, today we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and we extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. This episode is brought to you by the Psych Collaborative, our online psychology clinic providing before and after work appointments and weekend appointments at times that suit you in the comfort of your own home. Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome to our new Q&A episode. Today, you are talking with one of your co-hosts, Amy, a registered psychotherapist. And one of your other co-hosts, Kat, a registered psychologist. Together we make The Psychology Sisters, a podcast dedicated to normalizing the mental health conversation. Coming up in today's episode, we are doing a whole range of questions that you guys have sent in from dealing with perfectionism to stonewalling to motivation while studying, burnout and trauma. Before we jump into that, Ames, we've got a very jam-packed episode. How are you? How's your week? Give me the update. Well, thank you for asking. Uh, Essentially, these are the exactly the same as the Q&As we usually do, except we have separated them to dive a little deeper and hopefully answer more questions in more detail with you because we love hearing from you and we love connecting with our audience. Um, So I'm really excited for this episode, something a little bit different for us. But my week, my week has been crazy and it's Tuesday. (laughs) It's been a long week already. Uh, No, it's been a really, really good week. Uh, What about you, Kat? What have you been up to? It's so funny because you sound like you are fine and then I can see (laughs) in the camera that you are not fine. You have this like pain in your eyes as you laugh, like (laughs) everything's fine and I can see (laughs) you just internally screaming through the, the Zoom camera. <laughs> oh no no I I truly truly am fine. Uh, I'm really really enjoying work. I'm very flat chat and possibly inundated. I think is the the describing mm. word I would use. Um, but I'm really really enjoying what I'm doing at the moment, and I feel really on top of everything, and that's a great feeling. Um, so yeah, not not struggling, just just very full on. But what about you? How's your work been? I feel like that's you all the time, Ames. I feel like you're always so busy and need a holiday. No, I probably sound like a broken record. So me again. Oh, I'm busy. Can we actually do a drinking game every time you say broken record or I'm busy? Yeah. How funny is it that my broken record is that I say broken record yeah, all the time? That's pretty funny. I think as the editor of the podcast, I listen to things like 10 times over. So perhaps I'm a little bit more sensitive to everything that we say. I really feel sorry for you. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. My week was fabuloso so far. Don't know if that's a word. I'm going to roll with it. In uh, in respect to my newfound love of Italian, fabuloso, it's my new thing. Sorry to anyone who speaks Italian. Uh, so far, so good. It is only Tuesday, so nothing has come crashing down, which is a real positive for me. Um, but yeah, I'm... Yeah, had a really good week. Nothing exciting happened, but I did actually, and this was almost going to be a pit, but it wasn't that terrible. Well, let's dive into it. What is your pit and peak of the week? Well, it didn't, it didn't actually meet the threshold for a pit for me because it is something that I do quite a lot, but I will add it in. Do you have a a pit-o-meter where where something, you know, meets the threshold? You know what? I do. 
<laughs> this is something I reflect on a lot as I drive. Um, how bad does it, my pit need to be? Because I've had some absolute fucking shockers. Some doozies. Had some doozies. So my threshold is actually quite high. I So, okay, I, I'll, let, I'll give you an example of my pit-o-meter. I was walking across the traffic lights last last week. For anyone who's an OG long-term listener, you know that I am perpetually clumsy. I fall over. I, uh, yeah, do lots of stupid things with my body. And I was walking across the traffic lights and I was looking down at my phone, which is, you know, firstly, shouldn't do that while you're walking. And there was lots of, it was quite a crowded day. It was a busy day. Lots of people at the intersection, lots of pedestrians and kind of halfway across, like I would say pretty much smack my middle. I tripped over. I, I fell over and, you know, hands reached the tar. It was, you know, I was almost on all fours. And you know what? I didn't care. Like there's still, I've been, I've been through so much worse. I was just like, oh yeah, just another Saturday another for day me. I, yeah, I want to see, it was like, oh yeah, classic me. I just brushed myself off and kept walking. <laughs> and I was like, usually that would have been a pit, but considering the amount of stupid things that happened to me, not even a pit, not even close to a pit. So my pitometer was quite small on that one. Um, in terms of my actual peak, Sorry, in terms of my action. Man, two years of recording, I still can't figure out which one's pit or which peak. Which one's pit, yeah. Jesus Christ, this is a car crash of an episode. So in terms of my pit, um, very similar to you, and I'm going to sound really uh, like the pot calling the kettle black, being like, stop saying broken record. Here I am about to deliver the same pit. I've just felt like a bit all over the shop at the moment. Like my routine is just all over the place. I'm working two jobs. We... Um, uh, I guess as business owners, trying to organize my partner's 30th. I've got a really good friend's hens coming up. I've got your birthday coming up, which I can't mm. disclose. <laughs> just a lot of things happening that I'm just, and also wedding planning is had to start again, which I'm, I'm happy about, but it's just more of my brain energy. There's a lot on your plate, isn't there? <laughs> yes. My there is, there is. Thank you for the sympathy. There is a lot on my plate. So, and I get overwhelmed quite easily. So when more than one thing just doesn't go my way, I, I kind of like freeze up and I get really frazzled. So this week's just one of those frazzled weeks. And I think maybe I was cursed with the tripping over the traffic lights because since then things have been, you know, a little bit overwhelming or just not going the way that I thought that they would. So perhaps I'm cursed, perhaps it's juju. Maybe I just need to wait for the two other bad things to happen and maybe I'll be out of it. you are literally just carrying a lot. And maybe, you need maybe to that's be why I trip. yourself. Yeah. Because yeah. you're probably so frazzled focusing on doing a million things, you know, with your mind elsewhere that you weren't present while you were walking and you tripped. You know, I was actually writing back to an email. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> even like I was doing anything fun. I was just emailing. Anyway, so yes, I'm just all over the shop. I feel like I've got my fingers in so many different pies and I'm not allowed to eat the pie. So I'm just sitting there being so busy and, you know, I haven't had time to enjoy anything, but you and I are potentially maybe surfing together. And I'm so excited for that. Amy and I have started surfing to anyone that's interested. (laughs) And it is maybe I'm so here for it. And I cannot wait. I literally just itch for the weekends. I'm like, Hey, what are you doing? (laughs) You free? (laughs) 
I'm like, yes, yes. Just let me finish this and then I'm absolutely free. Surfing is fun. It has become a newfound love for both of us. I, mm. This could be our new thing, guys. We could be the surfer sisters. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that is my pit is I'm feeling a little bit all over the shop. But, yes, my peak is that I'm trying to have a little bit more fun and a little bit more chill and be a little bit more, as I said last episode, a bit more playful mm. and skating and surfing. And I've actually started journaling in the morning, which mm. is kind of ironic because I journal off and on, but I always say to my clients, journaling is so important. And I'm like, dude, you need to do it yourself too. Mm. Um, I don't take my own advice ever. So journaling I have been doing and it's been really wonderful I'm actually really loving it so that's been my little self-care this week is a little little journal so Ames talk to me about beautiful love that your pit and peak okay so I have a bit of a blooper for you this week and I have regrettably already shared this story with you Kat but perhaps I will add some GDP (laughs) and exaggeration for the (laughs) listeners this is the best story I can't wait is this is this this one you know what it is (laughs) You know what it is. So like Kat, I have been learning to surf, something that I thought, you know, we would bond over. And yes, we definitely have. And I've become addicted to it. You know, I've always wanted to, but because I don't live near the beach, I kind of told myself, you have to wait till you move to the beach before you can learn to surf. So little reminder to myself and others out there that are keen to try new things. Don't wait to do things that you want to do. I had this moment where I was like, wait a minute, girl. You can learn how to surf right now. You don't have to wait till you live near the beach to do that because, you know, later might never come. Anyway, I digress. So I'm paddling away, feeling really cool, feeling really confident (laughs) after catching a few little waves. (laughs) You know, I'm like, oh, look at me go. Um, You know, other beginners out there who were admittedly about five, you know, a lot more buoyant than I am, but, you know, still killing it. And five-year-olds shred. Five-year-olds are irritatingly good at their learning little, new things really quickly their little bodies just float naturally know, so they're just like, and they, they don't have fear we were talking about this when we went um surfing on sunday kids don't have fear kids yeah. have zero fear they're just like oh cool a hammerhead shark no worries oh cool a six yeah. foot wave no problem and we're like, like a little oh bit of seaweed God. touches you and you're like ah, <laughs> get away yeah totally I see this really gnarly surfer dad with long salty hair teaching his genetically blessed children how to be one with the ocean and I was like samesies we are so cool right now like smiled at him while simultaneously throwing up a little shockers he then looked directly at me cringed with his face making this awkward half smile like shocked expression even raised his shoulders to his ears and proceeded to wave his hand over his chest region and then pointed at me and for a few seconds I was confused and dazed but still thought we were sharing this cool surfy vibe I was like yeah man totally like we're killing it out here and then I looked down and see that both my boobs had popped out of my bikini and the cool surfy dad wasn't connecting with me. He was trying to shield and protect his small, innocent children from being exposed to my bosoms. And so I shrieked and dove into the waves, pulled my bikini top up, and by the time I resurfaced, he was gone. Oh, my God. So that's like what – there's a, there's a term for that. This is a criminal activity, an accidental criminal Indecent activity. Indecent exposure is what they call it. 
Um, so yeah, the cool surfer dad was gone and so was my dignity. I felt like I was bathing in my own humiliation out there. Um, and my peak is that we got to have cafe. We got to go to a coffee (laughs) and catch up, which is so rare for us to just go have a coffee with nothing else. Like no business agenda or anything like that. So that, that was my peak. My peak was that we just walked around, we went homeware shopping, we Mm. had a coffee and we were kind of just like normal friends. I know. Beautiful. I appreciated that day so much. And I really just was like, dude, we never do this anymore. We're so busy in meetings and potting and running a business that we're just like, we didn't have time to do that. So it's been really fun to be your best friend again. (laughs) I'm like, hey, I'm Kat. Really nice to meet you. (laughs) So what's up with you? Yeah, like soon talk to me. What's going on in your life? Anywho, let us get into the questions. That was the longest introduction, but our Q&As are going to be a little bit more casual, guys. We um, know that you guys love to hear about our life updates, which is very surprising because generally we're quite boring. Um, But we will make it a little bit more casual and then we will throw in the Q&A for the second half. All right, Ames, talk to us about the first question. Okay, first question that we received in our Q&A box on Instagram. If you don't follow us on Instagram, maybe give us a follow Um, at the psychology sisters. We love hearing from you guys, any requests, suggestions Mm. or questions we really take on board and we really, really, really try and answer you and get back to you and pop it in our potty. So the first also hang on, sorry before you jump in, it's me. Um, If you guys don't follow us on Instagram, Amy is MVP at content creation. You don't just go on there and we talk about episodes. We actually rarely talk about the podcast on the Instagram. So much so that people are like, are you guys a podcast? (laughs) They usually just follow us for the – Ames puts up heaps of awesome stuff about – um, tips and tricks that can help anything to do with mental health, anything that is it really makes you think. And we've also started to do reels and making it a little bit more fun. So please give that a follow. She posts a lot of really, really awesome stuff. It's really just an extension of the podcast, but in visual Instagram, pretty, mm-hmm. pretty well, we ways. Both we both do. We both do. Join effort, guys. Yeah, but, but you, you kill it. You kill it, girlfriend. Oh, so stop. yes, Thank you. go and follow our Instagram. I will pop it in the show notes. And just a reminder, guys, these questions uh, do not replace personalized psychological advice. Please do not take this as, yep, personalized advice, more just general information. Also, these questions, we might discuss abuse and domestic violence. So if this is a trigger for you in any way, we strongly suggest that you skip this Q&A section. Wonderful. Okay. Finally, getting to our first question. Um, We just received perfectionism. So we thought we would do a little general, uh, I guess, overview of what perfectionism is for you. And if this is something that you have more questions on, please write to us and we could even do a whole episode on perfectionism. But Kat, what are your thoughts on perfectionism? Perfectionism is a character trait that is quite common, I think, and it's something that I find particularly in uh, with clients that I see is quite common in the creative industries or the creative pursuits. I think musicians, artists, um, anyone who does work in creativity or needs to use their imagination, I think that that's when I, I see a lot of perfectionism and but also, you know, that isn't limited. It, it really can extend across 
any any occupation and it can um, present for, with anyone. It's just that in those industries, they tend to be more pressure on producing something perfect. So therefore, there's more focus and more anxiety around perfectionism. But I think perfectionism is such a double-edged sword, isn't it? It's seen as something that can force you to produce really good quality work. And it, it, and there was probably a time in your life, if you are perfectionist, where you received positive reinforcement for producing something of high quality or high standards. So of course, when we love to receive rewards, we love to receive reinforcement. So if that was reinforced to you, it's, it's easy to see how people can become a lot more perfectionistic and want to achieve really high and be really competent in their role or in a task or whatever it is that they're a perfectionist in. So on one hand, it can be really good. It can be a really good motivator and driving force, but on the other hand, it can slow people down with tasks that aren't really important. It can slow people who want it to be perfect Mm. down and it can take so much energy to make something perfect when it doesn't need to be. So perfectionism on one hand can be really helpful on the other hand though can be quite draining and can you know cause the person to make some sacrifices of missing out on other things if they're focusing on getting something perfect so it's really it's not clear-cut is it perfectionism Mm, not at all and I totally agree I think the way people typically view perfectionism is that it's a positive thing right um and that's like like I guess one way to look at it and it the other way to look at it is there can definitely be adaptive and maladaptive sides to perfectionism. Adaptive being that um, high achievable personal standards, you know, a preference for organization and order and self-satisfaction and a desire to excel and achieve uh, positive rewards. But perfectionism, however, um, can sometimes be that unrealistic and unrelenting expectation that you will excel at everything. And, you know, you always do and say the right thing and to everything and everyone. And that is where perfection can sometimes be really detrimental where um, there's a lot of shame and unworthiness around good enough. Um, One thing that I wanted to talk about is um, codependency and attachment here. Shock, I know. (laughs) Um, Those that struggle with codependency um, develop in an environment where there may not have been a lot of safety and predictability. And as a result you know we might try and alleviate our anxiety by trying to control our environment and maybe that is people and situations maybe it's one or the other so as children we believe that we would feel secure loved and accepted if we could prevent bad things from happening like say our parents getting into a fight or getting drunk um and so we feel overly responsible um and sometimes that can look like children parenting themselves um, and and taking on an adult responsibility at an early age. And that looks like being perfect as an attempt to avoid criticism, rejection, anger. Um, You know, it it could be the thought that if we could be perfect, we would be loved um, or at least avoid being belittled or rejected or abandoned. So for A lot of people, perfectionism began in childhood where being perfect, compliant or, you know, overly helpful, people-pleasing was a way to earn worthiness or a way to earn love. And that's why 
I think there's a lot of shame which tends to be at the roots of perfectionism because it's that feeling that there's always something wrong with you or that you're not as good as everyone else and that underlies both um, attachment and perfectionism you know it develops out of those maybe family secrets and being told or treated like you're you're worthless or being perceived as being worthless you know and we're trying to offset our shame with people pleasing or pushing ourselves harder and striving to be perfect but because we can't be perfect because we're human and it doesn't exist um, that really adds to our feelings of shame and isolation um, when we are intolerant to our imperfections and failings in ourselves and others so unlike most people we think our mistakes and our problems are evidence of our inferiority and so they only serve to reinforce the sense that we're not good enough. But there's a big difference between self-discipline and, you know, having a healthy, uh, a, a healthy pursuit of your goal um, and tying up your happiness and self-worth in whether you can attain your goals or not. And I think when we're talking about perfectionism, what we really need to strive for is that self-acceptance and recognize that self-worth doesn't have to be earned. You are already a whole person and you are enough as you are. I like to describe perfectionism as an extremely heavy shield that we carry around to protect us. But the weight of that shield is usually the one thing that prevents us from truly seeing and accepting ourselves. So once we let go of that shield, there is freedom from the heaviness of those unrelenting expectations and feelings of not being worthy and good enough that weigh on you. All right. What would be your, your tips for someone that felt like they were struggling with perfectionistic tendencies or, or felt like they were suffering from a bit of perfectionism? Yeah. So pretty much like you summed up, let's get to the root of your perfectionism. Where is it coming from? Where is this need to achieve? And what what are you trying to prove? I think sometimes when we work with clients, a lot of their need to overachieve and people please comes from this belief that is no longer valid or it come, came from a message from parents or teachers or whoever was around at that early, on the early stages of childhood that in order for them to feel loved, as you said, they need to be successful. They need to do A, B and C often. And also from, you know, really overly critical parents who, you know, as you said, you mentioned need to earn the love. So let's get to the root of that. Let's start to question as well, these beliefs that you might have that I need to be the best at A, B, and C to feel loved. Is that true? Think about mistakes that you've made in your life. Did you, did anyone love you any less? Did anyone leave you? Did you do things imperfectly? And how did that result? Perfectionists will tend to focus on the negative. They will focus on the things that they've done wrong. They'll forget to focus on the things that they have done right and well, even at 80%, even at 75% achievement. Um, so I think that that would be a really good thing to, I, I think from a cognitive perspective, let's go in and, and challenge some of those beliefs that you have because they're probably longstanding and they're probably not valid. They probably have never been valid, but as a child, you don't know that, you know, your parents, you believe what your parents tell you or the messages you receive. So I think as an adult, we have that insight to go back and be like, actually, maybe I don't need to do those things. So that would be a really good way to start. And obviously therapy is really helpful for this. This is not, it can be done on your own, but I think having a therapist to guide you with these questions and talking about where your perfectionism comes from can be a really helpful place to start. 
Um, I think also knowing, I think something that I find with clients who are perfectionists, they tend to feel anxious when they, they know that something needs to be done, but they don't want to lower their expectations. They don't Mm. want to do anything less than a hundred percent. And I think it's not about focusing on that. Um, it's about looking at the bigger picture. What are you spending your energy on? Like what kind of things are you spending your energy on? Is it worth you spending the extra three hours on a presentation? What are you sacrificing if you do? Does that mean you don't get the exercise time or the time with your partner or the things that you love to do? So I think like that would be my general tips is looking at, you know, let's spend maybe an hour on that task instead of three hours and let's see, create a flow chart, create a checklist, get things done, write how much time needs to be allocated to each thing and actually tick that off. And maybe that provides a bit of structure and a bit of perspective of how long things can take because perfectionism might get caught in that cycle of, oh my God, like I didn't realize how it was, it's 1am, it's 2am. I didn't realize I was so focused. So those things I reckon could be really helpful. What do you think? Anything to, to add? Absolutely. I think those are some great, great tips. The only thing I would add to that is just gentle reminders to yourself, like the only way to improve at something is to try and fail and then try again. Like failure is normal and essential to success. Um, You know, instead of seeing it as something to uh, criticize or judge yourself harshly for, embrace it as part of your process. So um, exactly like you were saying, Kat, perfectionists measure success and self-worth by their achievements. So focusing on the process um, and taking the pressure away from the results. Uh, you know, it's not about whether you win or you get a promotion or, or the praise. Um, you know, some things are worth doing uh, because you enjoy them, even if you don't get any accolades. So I think that can be helpful too. Um, and that failure I guess to achieve perfection isn't proof that you're bad or stupid or unsuccessful or unwanted or any of the negative things that we tell ourselves it just means that we set unrealistic expectations and expectations can be changed so just like Kat was saying really looking at your expectations um and the second I totally agree um that perfectionists are really really hard on themselves so definitely showing yourself that compassion and that acceptance to forgive yourself for things that aren't perfect and the mistakes you make because we're going to make mistakes. We're going to screw up. It's part of the process. Um, But it does take practice and time to change that way of thinking. Uh, Remind yourself that, uh, you know, everyone screws up from time to time and show yourself the same kindness that you would show to someone else. You know, kindness motivates us to do better. So criticizing and shaming yourself tends to only prolong that cycle that we get into of um, like you were saying, Kat, feeling really anxious about failing and then maybe not being able to do anything about it. Awesome. All right. Question number two, Ames, does stonewalling the narcissist make them angry even if they left to begin with? This is a really good question. Yeah. I really, really love this question. Um, And I think at first I was like, oh, this is a simple question. Um, but I think it's actually not that simple when you, when you really think about it and break it down. And I think it would be helpful to really understand why, um, this may not be effective. Um, and I I guess first it's really important to make clear that all of us 
you know, from time to time will engage in silent treatment or maybe on the recipient end of someone else giving you the cold shoulder. We may sometimes ignore people who hurt us or hurt our feelings and, and go silent because we feel too hurt or too vulnerable and we need space. So it's important to have that reminder that it's healthy to take time out periodically, you know, to um, control your emotions or, or to, you know, give yourself that time and space for something that's hurt you. But it is unhealthy to use what is often described as silent treatment. Stonewalling is actually a method that narcissists will use to control others. And I think that's a really important differentiation is when you're talking about stonewalling, are you talking about simply taking time and space that you need um, when you're feeling hurt or vulnerable? Or are you using this, I guess, against someone else? I think that would be important to unpack first. And then I think also a really important part of this question is that narcissists have unconscious mechanisms going on. You know, it's fear of abandonment, fear of enmeshment or they are not aware of that. Essentially, narcissists are trauma victims, but these unconscious behaviours that they adapt are, are very, very different. And so sometimes the narcissist will feel threatened by attempts to take over control. And so to compensate, they might step up their demands or they might treat you badly or they might distance themselves to punish you or attempt to manipulate you. And so I guess... I'm interested to see what your thoughts would be on this cat because it is a really tricky question and I think it is a really complex question to unpack. But I would say, say rather than stonewalling um, a narcissist that you look at boundaries. Um, so, so you look at really setting your boundaries. Uh, what are the most important changes that you need to make for you? you know, is there anything that you've tried in the past you know, what support do you have and what support do you need? Focus on how their behaviour makes you feel rather than, I guess, their motivations. Um, because I also heard in this question that you've asked whether stonewalling would make them angry. So I think you need to be okay with knowing um, truth about yourself, even if the narcissist sees the situation differently. Yeah. The only thing that I can add to that is going on to boundaries, um, as you kind of mentioned already, but narcissists have real issues with adhering to boundaries because obviously they, their caregivers likely violated their own boundaries or they were never taught to respect others' boundaries. So of course, when you try to set boundaries and stonewalling is a way to set boundaries, it's not the best way to set boundaries, but it's certainly a way to your what is happening is that they don't have the experience nor do they have the modeling to respect that boundary. They have never been taught that. So of course, when you stonewall a narcissist, they would generally get angry because they've never had to experience that before. Right? So because they also lack empathy. They lack a lot of the acknowledgement of other people's feelings. They generally can have a really strong sense of entitlement and they mm do tend to exploit others for their own, um, what's the word I'm looking for, for their own benefit. 
um, because boundaries are something that get in the way of them getting what they want. So stonewalling will definitely make a narcissist angry. And as AIM said, you need to be really understanding of your what you need and I guess your health in the relationship. If you are dating a narcissist or if, if it's a friend, I think that understand that you need to put yourself first. Narcissists are really good at gaslighting and abusive relationships is something that they tend to perpetrate quite a lot. So stonewalling may not be helpful, but if it's something that helps you to survive, if it's something that provides you with a sense of boundaries, then if that's all that, if you've tried everything else and, you know, by all means, if that's, you know, the, the best thing that you can do for yourself. But I think we would definitely recommend putting in those softer boundaries first, trying to tell them, trying to let them know of any consequences if they cross the boundaries, put in the hard boundaries, tell them exactly what will happen follow through with the consequences. If you, if you come to my house, I will call the police, follow through with that. And then if there is no, um, if they keep crossing and trespassing that boundary, you really do need to reach out for that, for that extra help. So stonewall is not the best way, but if it's the only way that's going to help you to um, get out of that relationship or friendship or whatever it is, then that might be, yeah, helpful for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really, really good answer. And if you are really struggling with this situation, I would definitely recommend reaching out to a therapist. Uh, it can be really helpful to discuss, uh, you know, different patterns that can emerge with narcissists and, and how to go about coping with them in a really mm-hmm. safe, um, supportive environment for you. Yeah. And it's not your fault if someone gets angry. It's mm. never your, someone else's response to your boundaries is never, ever your responsibility. Okay. So I think you might feel really bad or empathetic, or they might make you believe that you've done something wrong, but please mm. know that you absolutely haven't. If you need to put boundaries in place, you need to do that. And that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Great answer. Uh, Katniss, how to stay motivated at uni <laughs> studying psychology. <laughs> You wrote the book on this one. Oh my God. I'm not the person to answer this question, but I will give it my best shot. <laughs> Studying uni at Psych was an absolute uphill battle. So I don't think I ever consistently felt motivated. I think I had periods and spouts, definitely fueled by Red Bull and coffee, but I was never consistently motivated. I was never a perfect student. Were you? You were actually a pretty good student names. Like I, I felt like you had a lot more motivation than what I did. <laughs> No, no, I can, I can really, really relate to what you're saying. And I can relate to this question because it it is hard and it's tedious and it's a long, long degree. Long, long, long (laughs) degree. So just know that motivation will come and it will go. And that is okay. It means you're human. Tick the box. You are human. Well done. What you will need to rely on is potentially more discipline discipline is doing something even when you don't want to with the acknowledgement of it will fulfill your long-term goals. So I think one thing that could be helpful to look at is your intrinsic motivation and your extrinsic. So this is getting a little bit sciencey, but I promise it will probably help. Um, Intrinsic is when you are driven to succeed because of it, it will fulfill something that you want to fulfill. You know, it will mean that you get an awesome career as a psychologist or a therapist. You know, that is your inner wants. That's something that you find meaningful. Extrinsic is driven by external reinforcement. So getting a good mark, um, your parents are really proud of you. Your parents wanted you to do that course. They want, you know, so you can see how, 
it really, the success of your motivation and discipline, especially in psych really depends on whether you're intrinsically or extrinsically motivated. Generally, even, extrinsic seems effective you know we love to get rewards as i said but most research shows that we are more driven by our intrinsic motivations and more likely to stick to our long-term goals versus our extrinsic so find out what your intrinsic motivations are remember your why why did you start what is it that you want to achieve at the end of this it seems really a lot when you first start like oh five six seven Mm. years however long you're spending Break it down and remember your why. Why did you start? What will this help you achieve? How will that feel good for you? How will that be meaningful for you? Um, And I think that that might be a really good place to start is looking at those things. What do you think, Ames? I literally had down my first thought point is remember your why. I completely agree. (laughs) Uh, Remember your why. As Kat said, psychology for us especially um, is definitely a vocation at times. Of course, it's normal to lose motivation. Studying is intense and it's draining and not to mention the sacrifice sacrifices we often make you know I know especially for us Kat you know when you were doing your thesis especially when I was doing my master's you have to say no to a lot of things Um, and sometimes that can be a bit draining on your motivation levels Um, especially living off tins of tuna (laughs) and me goring noodles (laughs) um so yeah remind, soup, cream of soup, mushroom soup, cream of was, mushroom soup. Honestly, really I, saved you really it was three dollars 99 in coals and i was on a student budget i was living with you josh says i'm homeless i was just you know capitalizing that my best friend had a spare room <laughs> yeah absolutely it's it's tough uh, i think re- remind yourself why you started why it's important to you um, and what it would mean when you finish. I think that can be sometimes a real drive. Um, what is it going to mean to you once you finish your studies and you are a psychologist, if that's what you want to be? Uh, it might be helpful to write that down, mm. you know, pop it somewhere. You can see it maybe on your desk or in your diary so that you can reflect on it and have that as, you know, a really nice uh, motivator for you. Mm. Um, but, yeah, totally agree. I think you pretty much Nailed that one, Katniss. Self-discipline when motivation fails. Oh my gosh, I know. And it's so hard. Please know that, you know, there are times when you just do not want to attend that lecture or go to that shoot. Totally, totally get that. Please know from someone, from us who have completed work at the other end, that that's okay. That's human. It doesn't necessarily mean you won't be a good therapist if you don't want to go to uni. Um, also, one thing that could help is reframing how you think about uni. I remember I used to do this a lot. I would be like, oh, uni. Oh, God, I've got to go to this and I'm there for seven hours or something like that. Sometimes I would say to myself, yes but you are so lucky that you get to go to uni and do Mm. what you want to do. And at the end, it means that you get to be in a job that you love. How lucky are you? There are lots of people who would kill to be in that position, especially as females. So acknowledging your privilege and knowing that, yes, I know it's hard, but having a bit of perspective and saying, wow, I'm lucky that I get to be here and choose something that I want to do. I'm not forced into something where I'm, you know, I get to study, I get to, you know, choose Mm. that. And you did choose it, you know, hopefully no one had a gun to your head. You get to, you chose that. So, you know, it's something that you obviously wanted to do, remembering your why. Mm. Um, 
And finding stuff that's fun about uni, the fun thing for me was the barista, um, but whatever that looks like for you, whether that's a study group, whether that's meeting up with friends after uni, having that will keep you sane, having the fun, exciting parts of uni, reframing it. And also um, motivation is contagious. So surround yourself with people who are also intrinsically motivated, like a study group, um, a little group that meets up just to talk about psych. One thing that I've also noticed, sorry, Ames, I know I'm talking a lot, no, is um, no. lots of people that follow us on the PS Insta page are students, psych students who are studying psych and have their own Instagram page to talk about all things psychology. And because I think sometimes at uni you, that you don't get taught all the stuff that you probably really want to know. You've got to go through lots of theory and lots of kind of dense material. So if you start an Instagram page, like this is just off the top of my head, but it's something that could keep you interested and motivated and you wanted to learn more and it makes you a little bit more interested in the content and makes you learn, do your own kind of learning on, on the side. So that could be something if you're someone that, you know, just likes, you like to learn through Instagram or it's to keep up your, that interest and motivation. So that would be a little, little hot tip from me. Yeah, absolutely. Love those tips. Next question. All right, Ames. How can I have a good work-life balance and prevent burnout? Ah, yes. The elusive (laughs) work-life balance. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) Full disclosure, I'm much better at psychoeducating people on this than I am practicing it myself. But I do um, have a few little practical tips to remind myself and others of. Um, Cutting the fat. So, Stop doing things that you don't need to do because you've grown accustomed to them. That can be really, really hard because sometimes we get into these habitual kind of routines where we just do things because we've always done them. It can help by being really aware of where your time is being spent and what is not necessary. And that, I guess, comes back to or circles to my next point, and that is learning to say no. That is something that we preach a lot is you need to secure your own oxygen mask before helping anyone else. Uh, If you don't put your own priorities first, everyone else's demands will simply take over and you will burn out because you won't have time for you. Before you know it, you'll be doing everyone else's job except your own. So often when we say yes to requests, you know, it's that instant like, you know, without even thinking, without even really being consciously aware, we'll just be like, yep, sure, no worries. I can do that or I can be there or no problem. And then we'll, you know, look at our schedule or we'll mm. remind ourselves that, oh, crap, I actually have to do X, Y, and Z and how the heck am I going to fit this in? Don't be afraid to delay giving an answer to something. If you are not sure, take time. Take time to really think about, one, whether you can actually do what you're about to say yes to. Two, what are your priorities? What is important to you to get done this week? And then if simply it doesn't fit in with prioritizing your needs, you can politely refuse them or postpone it to a day where you can fit it in or a week where you can fit it in. I think those are probably what I would say for myself. Um, the best ways that I have learned to prevent that work burnout. 
And I think going back to your point, Ames, of when you say yes immediately, what you're actually doing is short, like in the short term, it feels good to please someone and to say Mm. yes to someone. You're actually ignoring the long-term sacrifice it will take. You know, you maybe haven't thought through, oh God, I don't have the extra four or five hours to complete that extra task or do that extra thing that you want me to do or to go out to coffee, blah, blah, blah. So yes, short term, it you're dispelling some discomfort by saying yes, because saying no is uncomfortable, right? Learn to sit in that discomfort, I would say. Learn to be okay with feeling uncomfortable and saying no. And that's when, as Aim said, having that space, being like, let me think about it. Practice mm. how it feels to say no. This might sound strange, but practice in the mirror. Say, mm. I don't want to do that or I don't have the time. I'm sorry to do that. The more you practice feeling uncomfortable, the easier it becomes to say no. I think that's what, um, you know, people pleases. That's what a lot of where that comes from is I don't want to feel uncomfortable and make them upset or offend them. So it's easier if I just say yes and then deal with Mm. the consequences later. Absolutely. Because we all want to be liked, right? And Mm. I think we are taught that by saying no to someone, it means that they're going to be angry at us or upset with us or, you know, that we're going to lose them as a friend or, you know, that they our employer is going to be angry at us for not doing something. But I think exactly a really good question to ask yourself is by saying yes to them, am I saying no to myself? Mm, Absolutely. And I love that this person has asked before they are burnt out. How Mm. do I have a good work-life balance? That is such a great question. And I love that it hasn't got too far. Hopefully Um, you're asking it in response to how can I manage my work-life balance? And I think that early intervention is always key. So be really vigilant to early warning signs. That might be saying yes a lot more, feeling more tired, thinking about work outside of work, thinking about study outside of study. Um, It could be that you're feeling um, really underwhelmed. You're feeling you've lost a lot of passion. You're saying no to hobbies. You're saying no to things that you really want to do because you feel like you need to do extra work. So Mm. just be really vigilant to those early warning signs. And I would also say keep your HR or supervisor up to date with how you're feeling. If you're even starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed, let someone know. Do not let that build up and think that it will go away on its own. Likely Mm. it won't unless you do something about it. It might just build and build like a snowball. Absolutely. And last but not least, self-care, a great Mm. preventative and something that is important when we are well and when we are feeling good, just as it is when we are starting to feel the effects of burnout is ensuring that we are prioritizing self-care. So whatever that is for you, however you rest and restore, it might be going for walks. It might be practicing mindfulness or mindfulness movement, maybe something like yoga, might be dancing. It it might be uh, going for long drives. It might be swimming in the ocean. It might be learning to surf. Uh, what, whatever that is. Shuckering. It might be shuckering. <laughs> um, Decent exposure. Hashtag self-care. <laughs> oh, yes. It might be flashing small, innocent children in the Please ocean. Don't do that, guys. <laughs> do, not, do not participate in <laughs> decent exposure. <laughs> oh, don't sue us. Um, one thing actually that could really help, sorry, is one thing that I noticed helped me when I was feeling really burnt out from work is taking space away from your work day. I'm really generalizing here that it's a work thing. Don't eat your lunch at your desk. Don't eat your lunch in your workspace. Go outside, go for a walk, distract yourself, find things that away from work, have their life outside of work as well. 
because if you feel like work is the only thing for you, you will burn out, right? If you don't have that life outside of work. So make sure you keep up with those hobbies. Make sure you go for that walk. Make sure you step outside for a coffee break. Separate yourself from work is really important. Hot tip. Absolutely. Love that one. And I definitely need to do more of that. Yes, Amy, this is your homework. (laughs) Step away. Kat, what is it like being a psychologist? (sighs) Gosh, I did not prepare this question because I thought I would just word vomit. I don't even know where to start. I I don't even, I I don't even know. Um, What is it like being a psychologist? It is, I will start off and say, upon reflection, two seconds ago, it is the most wonderful job. It is the best job. I love my job so, so much. And it's so nice to say that and to feel that and to feel like you are helping someone. I think for me, I feel really um, good to help people. And generally anyone that gets into psych maybe has the same personality type. So to be able to do that is wonderful to um, have people listen to you and listen to your advice and need that support and lean on you and share their stories with you, share their highs, share their lows and trust you. And to hold space for people is such a sacred thing that I feel no, not many other jobs can do. Um, And it's such a powerful thing. So for me, I'm so lucky in this job. It is a hectic job. <laughs> it's um, insane. As I was saying in the beginning, my head is sometimes all over the shop, but that's a lot more self-inflicted. Um, I'm sure other psych- psychs uh, are a lot more organized than me. Um, but yeah, I really love it. It's busy. It's a lot of work to get to being a psych, but I say this to um, any questions that we ever have that come through or friends that ask. Once you're there, it's so worth it. <laughs> if you're listening to this and you're studying, once you are get once you get there, it is absolutely just the best job ever. What about you, Ames? What is it like being a psychotherapist? Oh gosh, I think you took the words right out of my mouth. I also didn't prepare for this question, thinking that, oh yeah, I'll just know that because duh, it's about me. But uh yeah, I think it is the most amazing job most of the time. Uh completely echo what you said I think I am so lucky and honored uh, to walk with people through their therapeutic process and to hold space for them and you know to create change in their life and to alleviate emotional pain um, and to allow people to develop self-acceptance I I think it's really inspiring work and Mm -hmm. I love it love what I do I think it can be stressful though Um, just like any job, I think when you care for your clients, like Kat and I do, there is sometimes this responsibility and sometimes this pressure that can become a little bit heavy if you don't look after it. Uh, so I will say sometimes, um, yeah, it it is a little bit stressful and it can be a little bit heavy, especially, you know, as much as it is a professional relationship, it's still a a relationship and it's a therapeutic relationship. So we do, Um, really care about our clients and they mean a lot to us and sometimes when we hear stories of suffering and and you know really profound powerful stories um, yeah sometimes we sitting with that is is a little bit tricky but I think regular supervision is an absolute godsend (laughs) Um, I am always so eager to see my supervisor every two weeks and that is also part of being a therapist that maybe a lot of either new therapists or um, 
just people that are curious about what it's like to be a therapist. Um, we don't often talk about is that, you know, we often talk about our clients and I was actually just having this conversation earlier with someone. We often talk about our clients having, you know, um, admiration for us. And maybe this sounds a little bit strange, but you know, often clients, um, you know, we are seen as, you know, a really positive supportive role in, in which we are, but we often don't talk about what our clients mean to us and, and how we see our clients. And I, I think that is a really important part of our job and what it's like being a client is that clients usually mean just as much to us as we mean to them. And they are just as big a part in our process in, in our career as what they are in their lives. I know that sounds probably really weird, um, but I also think it's a really beautiful part of what mm. we do. Yeah, and it's it's not just that one hour as a mm. psych. You think about your clients often, right? And you, I think one thing that I sometimes always come off my calls with is, whoa, like that person is amazing. And I'm mm. my clients will know I'm so expressive. I, as psychs, were learned to be quite. Um, <laughs> expressive and I'm not I'm always like in shock or I'm really proud or I'm really impressed by how much people have been through and that for me it sticks with me and it as it would people have some most beautiful powerful traumatic stories so those things really stick with you as a therapist how could it not I I, I always am in awe of therapists who can really switch off after that one hour and really non-expressive because I'm always you know amazed impressed um really really moved by clients so yeah i'm it's such a good job i love 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 this job we both do which is why we started business and podcast (laughs) we we have to love it right (laughs) very true very true very beautiful words katniss oh right your your clients are very lucky to have you oh right back at you my love you're the calm soothing one and i'm like whoa i tripped over on a traffic light today one I'm, I flash small children. <laughs> oh gosh, we've really come full circle, haven't we? <sighs> haven't we just? All righty, Ames, this is a question for you. How do we hold trauma specifically in relation to our body? Oof, again, I'm going to try and answer this question as short as I can, but it, it is a really broad question uh, and trauma is complex. But I also really love this question. I really, really feel that trauma has become a bit of a buzzword, which is mm. great because it normalizes our experiences and it's really creating this understanding around why we are the way we are, which I'm so freaking passionate about and we're so here for. I we think are so here for trauma. <laughs> I think that's literally why we started this podcast because yeah. there's just so much more appreciation for how small T trauma, which is cumulative over many years, impacts us. You know, there is this wider understanding now that trauma does not just come from people who went to war or, you know, really specific profound events, um, which is what we call big T trauma. Everyone has trauma. No one goes through life unscathed. And it's not about, whoa, I had such a a bad childhood. Um, You know, a lot of people that we'll work with will say, oh, I had a pretty good childhood. Mm. Um, You know, and it's not until we really get to the root of the root and, that kind of thing where we, we find those little T traumas. Um, 
So I really love how there is this acknowledgement now that trauma really can be considered anything that keeps us locked in a physical, emotional, behavioral, or mental habit. And recovery from trauma is the process of the body finding balance and freeing itself from those constraints. So in other words, processing the trauma, the traumatic occurrence with what was needed at the time you were traumatized. I'll repeat that again. Processing the traumatic occurrence with what was needed at the time you were traumatized. Our body is our container. Everything that happens to us emotionally or psychologically happens to our bodies as well. The energy and the sensations of trauma is stored in our bodies and we feel it in our nervous system. That's why often we will use um, a lot of grounding and mindfulness techniques in trauma, and that's to connect a sense of safety in your body and calm our nervous system. So feelings represent the accumulation of unresolved experiences and the body's attempt to complete them. So by strengthening our inner resources, you know, as children, we have very limited resources and we do what we can at the time. We can process those feelings, releasing the stored trauma um, or the contained trauma and increase our ability to handle stress with better, healthier ways of, of processing or, or with, with a little bit more ease. Um, so I can break this down a little bit by explaining that basically our primary response um, we often have is our fight, flight, freeze. You know, our heart beats faster, blood pressure goes up, muscles tense we get ready to run our digestion slows down we sweat the other reaction we can have often when the trauma is overwhelming and we feel like we can't escape is that we might and this this often often happens um in situations of sexual assault or ongoing abuse in a relationship is that freeze response so our body kind of goes into a detached state it's kind of like shock so during this response, um, you know, which is mediated by our um, autonomic nervous system, areas of the, the brain that are responsible for fear, anger, emotion, um, by the amygdala, which is like a little fire alarm. Kat did an amazing episode very early on on anxiety and explains this in really good detail. So if this is hitting home for you, um, please listen to that one. It has been really, really helpful for a lot of people. We get some great feedback on that. But in essence, that becomes much more active while areas in our frontal cortex, so like our thinking area of the brain responsible for thoughts, decision-making, um, self-awareness, et cetera, kind of switch off a little bit. So trauma can essentially shock that autonomic nervous system. That's what happens. So we become kind of almost locked into a state of hyperarousal and hypervigilance. And I often explain this to my clients using the window of tolerance, which is probably an episode for another day. Um, but basically when these traumatic thoughts and memories remain, unprocessed for too long they often impede on our brain's kind of natural processes of recovery and become like little stuff points that inhibit that um integration or reintegration that's needed to process what happened so essentially it becomes overwhelming um, for our cognition and overwhelms our system and it's like too much we pop through our little window of tolerance and it's held in our body. 
Does that make sense? Love that. Yeah, absolutely. The only thing I can add to that is obviously the impact of trauma on memories. If we're traumatized, we don't often remember things as they were. They are more present as fragmented memories. And this is, I guess, when trauma is stuck in the body at a cellular level, you know, your body remembers these things that physical exercise and the the processing of that trauma physically can be super, super helpful. I know research has shown that yoga and meditation can be fantastic. Um, but, and that's really coupled with that talking therapy and starting to process some of that trauma as well. So trauma can certainly be holding the body. I think that's such a misconception that people didn't realize the physical effects of trauma as well um, down to the cellular level. So absolutely really good to know um, mm. that as well. So thank you for explaining that. Darling, absolutely. absolutely. And something that just popped into my mind too is that symptoms of traumatic stress can also become somatized. Mm-hmm. So people will feel genuine physical pain from emotional stress. So when the you know psychological nature of the symptom is too daunting or too scary or too overwhelming um, on a cognitive level for a person to accept or for a person to process, or if it's not safe yet, um, we can actually experience um, genuine physical pain mm. from traumatic events. Mm. One can manifest as symptoms, can't it? It's, mm. it's so interesting how something that happens cognitively comes out physically. It's all intertwined. Absolutely. Katniss, a question for you, my little anxiety queen. Not that you are the queen of having anxiety. <laughs> but... I am extremely anxious. <laughs> I am queen A, as they call me, queen anxiety. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about high-functioning anxiety because I feel like we get this question a lot. Mm. It's something so misunderstood and I feel like you're the girl, you know, you're the girl to really give the you're people the traumatized one. I'm the anxious one. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh, but we're like kind of true. Uh, okay. High-functioning anxiety, high-functioning depression. Um, really good question. I think it's, it's, it's another buzzword, high-functioning. What does mm. that mean? Does that mean we function highly with depression? Do we function high with anxiety? Who knows? So um, generally people who have anxiety or depression, they or they are diagnosed with a clinical diagnosis, display significant disruptions in their everyday life. So that's their functioning capacity, which means their ability to go to work, school, um, participate in social themes, etc. With high functioning depression anxiety, though, it's a little different. People who experience depression, anxiety, but are high functioning means that they are able to hide the disruption of their diagnosis in their everyday life. So the signs and symptoms of high functioning anxiety and or depression are often overlooked because sufferers are really well able to manage their daily activities, but they tend to suffer in silence or mask their symptoms. So to the outside world, people living with high functioning anxiety and depression seem fine. And they actually often excel um, and do quite well for themselves. Right. So people living with high functioning anxiety, depression don't often fit this stereotype and are really often misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all. Um, they can appear as overachievers, as we mentioned in the last, um, last few questions, people pleasers, uh, perfectionists, type A. So 
anxiety can actually serve a bit of a function for high people who do have high functioning anxiety. What it means though, is to be, to have high functioning anxiety means you're very energized. So it can drive you to, to achieve goals. Um, but it's not until later in private that the symptoms can come out and present. And often that's where the symptoms of depression can manifest is often in private. Um, so feelings of self doubt and self criticism, fatigue, helplessness, guilt, moodiness, um, can become really, really intensified, but it's often done in private. So nobody really knows that people who have high functioning anxiety, depression, often don't even realize themselves, right? Mm. This is perhaps a coping mechanism from childhood. Perhaps it's just something that they have experienced. Little T, big T trauma. This is how they cope. Um, because the stereotypical image of anxiety and depression doesn't fit these people, as I said, they often are not diagnosed. They don't even, they're not consciously aware of it themselves. I know I had a few clients who were referred or referred themselves for just stress, just general life stress, struggling to get on top of their routine. And sometimes in a few actually clients recently that I've had, I've said to them, do you know that you have, you're very high functioning and you're hiding, you, you have a clinical diagnosis of anxiety. You're just really good at hiding it. Mm. Shook. A lot of clients are really shocked by that because this has become their normal. You know, it's perhaps they've always had anxiety and or depression and or have been high achieving. So they don't know any different. It, nobody has picked it up, right? When you have a friend who is anxious or depressed, you can, you, you as a third party observer can tell, you can tell that something's up with a friend, right? High functioning uh, anxiety or depression, people who suffer from that, you cannot tell. They are really, really overachieving. They fit a criteria that you think they're actually probably killing it at life. <laughs> a lot of the time in private, they're actually suffering. So um, other signs of high functioning anxiety or depression, if you're listening to this and thinking, wow, perhaps this could be me, you're very self-critical. You have excessive worry or guilt over past or future decisions or mistakes. And you have a real inability to slow down or to feel joy or have fun. So like other forms of anxiety and depression will only get worse when not treated. So this is such a good question because it's so unrecognized and so easily, even among mental health professionals to go undiagnosed. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it, it, it sounds really deceiving high functioning, doesn't mm. it? Because it's like, Oh, you're, you're fully functioning. But I think high functioning doesn't mean that you're fully functioning. High functioning doesn't mean that you're functioning well. On the surface, you appear to be successful together Mm. and calm. And, you know, like you said, excelling at work and life. However, the way you feel on the inside might be a very different story. And I like to use the duck on water analogy to describe this. So when you watch a duck, you know, swimming, floating in the lake, it looks effortless, right? It looks like it's doing a really great job at being a duck, not drowning. But below the surface, its its little flippers are paddling so fast and its little heart is beating so fast and it it's probably got high-functioning anxiety because it doesn't know any other way to be. That might sound like a really bad analogy, but that is often how I describe it to mostly children and it really helps them make sense of like, mm. my goodness, exactly like you were saying, I didn't realise that even though this feels like I'm achieving and doing well, this is actually not a great way to function. And I think when it comes to depression, sometimes can inhibit the desire to do things, right? But high-functioning individuals tend to be able to 
forge ahead and do them anyway. So the drive to accomplish um, often sustains the action, which when we look at, you know, something like major depressive disorder, um, usually we don't see that. So high-functioning depression is usually referred to because it still, it, still imp- it still impairs someone's daily life. High-functioning mm-hmm. anxiety or depression doesn't mean that, you know, um, it's not impacting them. It impacts them very greatly. And so I think when it comes to depression, it, it's actually officially called persistent depressive disorder, which means that it's, it doesn't impair as much or as serious as major depressive disorder. However, it, it carries on for a longer duration so um, I guess it's a little bit more subtle. Like I said, people are, are generally still able to carry on with the same activity and action as they would without suffering from major depression. I think too with um, depression, a big misconception is that people can just snap out of it. I think a big all that they're sad. I think yeah. that's such a stereotype that they're sad and have no motivation, which would be the opposite of that would the presentation would be so different for someone who has high functioning depression in, in the public eye anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas depression is more of this intense um, feeling of like hopelessness and mm. the negative thoughts about self and yeah, it, it can be really consuming And so for people that uh, do have high functioning, this would be something that greatly impacts them. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the main difference between a clinical diagnosis of anxiety and depression versus high functioning is the ability to diminish or suppress the appearance of the disruptions, the functional disruptions in their life, right? That's really the main difference. And it can really, really snowball into a whole range of concerns because there it's not easy to pick up so sometimes it's not until someone comes to therapy for perhaps a totally unrelated issue therapists are a little bit more attuned to what's really going on so if you are someone who feels that you fit perhaps this criteria really good to reach out um, because you might not have realized until you were listening so have a little little chat to a therapist if you do need beautiful thank you for that clear concise definition love that you really encompass what i was trying to babble on about never do anything clearly or concisely it's 9 p.m on a tuesday oh gosh okay help two more questions do do you want to just do one more i mean i think they're pretty similar so let's just do them together all right one more question katniss there, there were two questions that are really sim- similar, so we're going to put them together. The first one is, how do I get my boyfriend to talk about mental health? And the second one is trying to encourage my partner to go to therapy. Great questions. Um, I feel like we've answered this quite a lot before in terms of the boyfriend question. Really good question. Um, I'll just say question one more time. <coughs> Sorry. You're right. How do you talk, how do you, how to get your boyfriend to talk about mental health? Okay. Great, great, great question. If your partner is someone who does not typically talk about mental health or is quite withdrawn or perhaps has been raised in a family where mental health was not normalized, was not talked about, I think it's about soft openings rather than hard openings. What I mean by that is not going straight into it and saying that they need to get a therapist or that they they have X, Y, Z wrong with them or you think that they might have depression or anxiety or ADHD, whatever. 
do not recommend doing that. People's natural reaction will be defensiveness and shutting off even more. What I would recommend is a much softer approach, whether that's talking about your own mental health, whether that's about normalizing mental health, just having the conversation about it. One thing that I found can be really helpful for particularly male partners is if he's interested, this is so stereotypical, I'm so sorry, but say for example, football, there's a lot of information on football as mental health. So finding it about something that he might look up to or enjoys, um, whatever that, that motivation is and tying that to mental health, that will start to normalize mental health because there's nothing that you can say that is going to maybe normalize it. Perhaps it's about reaching out and seeing who he perhaps idolizes or looks up to and talking about mental health in that sphere. I think that can be a really, really cool technique to try and something that isn't confrontational you know it could just be hey i heard on this podcast that um this you know footy player i don't know much about football i'm a bit of a noob but this footy player opened up about <laughs> his depression or um this tennis player or um i don't know what a guy's like ufc fighter <laughs> i'm so out of touch with what guys like i'm so sorry but yeah you get my gist anything that they might look up to find something, a podcast, an episode, a YouTube video, Instagram page where it can, they talk about mental health or opens that conversation up a little bit. That's what I would recommend for that boyfriend question. Anything to add? Yes. I, I love that answer. And you know, I mean, you could just really subtly leave this podcast open answering this question. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Um, I think this can be really tricky. You know, it's really hard to watch a loved one struggling with mental health and it can feel really helpless and frustrating as, as a partner. Mm. Uh, so I, I do just want to acknowledge that it can be a really tricky spot to be sitting in. One tactic that I have recommended before, but if you are a new listener, um, that can generally be really effective with males in general, because as Kat said, talking about feelings and having a space to sit with emotions might be quite foreign based on their upbringing. Um, and that is side-by-side -side communication. So going for a long drive, asking open-ended questions and simply listening. You know, we cannot force our loved ones to open up, but we can let them know that we care about them um, and how they're feeling. You know, we, we want to understand what's going on for them and we remain calm and empathic. And then, you know, another thing that you can do is you can communicate your observations to them. So as Kat said, people can become quite defensive and may take... Um, may take this suggestion as a criticism or a judgment. And so what we might do is we might simply just be curious around what you notice and what you observe. So for example, you might say something like, oh, I've noticed in the last, you know, couple of weeks, you've seemed a little flat and a little down and I'm wondering what's going on for you. Something as simple as that, just stating what you've observed, the behavior that you're concerned about, um, and leaving it open for them to kind of feel a little bit more supported and not judged. And maybe that will open up uh, a conversation for you. Yeah, love that. And similar to the question that's similar, how to encourage my partner to go to therapy. Uh, this is a tricky one, but you, you can't. I, I know that you probably, that's not the answer you want to hear. You can't talk someone into doing something they need to find that on their own in their yeah. own time if you force someone into therapy and we've both been in roles where people are forced to come to therapy people do not engage people are not motivated people will be resistant to treatment 
people have to feel ready in order for the best treatment. You have to feel ready to go. You cannot push someone into, into therapy. So that would be my hot tip from a therapist. Absolutely. I love that. And I think if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me how to get their partner Mm. to go to therapy, I'd have about $6. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But something I just thought of that has popped in my mind um, as, as we're kind of chatting about this is the only thing I can really think to add to that is, well, actually two things popped into my mind. One, um, firstly, if you have a partner or a loved one that is in immediate risk, such as suicide ideation, um, they've talked about attempting suicide, um, self-harm, contact emergency services and get support. Uh, secondly, if you are in a relationship with someone who is in any way abusive, um, don't offer them advice. This could trigger them and put you and them in a dangerous position. Seek support to um, possibly leave that relationship safely or just, um, yeah, seek, seek support as soon as possible so that uh, you and your partner aren't in any danger or aren't in any risk. And then if this is just for the, the general person, um, I, I would say that this becomes a perpetual problem in a relationship. Um, and I would, I would turn a little bit inward So what are your intentions for suggesting that your partner go to therapy? Because sometimes when I'm working with a client that talks to me about relationship concerns, and I know this sounds like a little bit of tough love, um, is maybe they're tired of listening to their partner. You know, maybe they don't want their partner to rely on them solely. And that is so normal. That is so okay. You know, you can't be your partner's friend and and therapist and confidant and lover, you know, um, and and if that's you and you are kind of looking for them to have support because you're getting a little bit tired of listening to them, it might be beneficial for you to see a couples therapist. You know, maybe there are some perpetual problems in your relationship that could be better worked on and understood together. You know, sometimes, um, that can be an effective way to resolve something that keeps coming up. So I'm probably not articulating this very well, but if this is something that you're thinking about a lot because maybe there's a lot of conflict in your relationship and you're thinking, oh, if they would only just change this or they really need to go to a therapist and sort out their shit, Mm. maybe that's when it might be time to really look at, okay, what am I wanting to change here? And are these things that, possibly we need to work on together. So I know that is a little bit of harsh, tough love. Um, but yeah. Therapy, you don't love tough love, I do you? You I hate don't. it. <laughs> but I just, I just thought the only thing I could add, because I love that answer, mm. is, is maybe, yeah, is maybe reflecting think, on why. Yeah, and I think that that's really true because I think a lot of, in my experience, people want their partner to go to therapy to see their side of an argument, right? Mm. That's not a reason for your partner to go to therapy because the thera- your partner has their own experience and perception of, say, for example, a, fl- a fight, an ongoing conflict, your relationship. A-, a therapist is not going to validate all everything that you're doing. You know, mm. it will, you're probably your own personal one will, but theirs won't. And you might hear things that you don't want to hear. So, 
understanding your motivation why, if it's just for them to get support and you're really worried about them, then yeah, I mean, having those soft approaches. But if it's something that you feel will benefit you rather than the relationship, really good to look at that motivation and maybe it's not the best motivation to get someone to go to therapy, um, yeah. to get the other therapist on your side. Um, so absolutely yeah. tough and, love and like you Tuesdays. Said, Absolutely. And like you said, if they're not ready, then they're not ready. That's Mm. up to them. But really important, don't forget to take care of yourself. Um, I haven't said broken record this episode, but here I go. Proud. Ready for my (laughs) first self blanc. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Do not forget self-care and self-compassion and boundaries and other buzzword. Please don't forget to assert your boundaries when you need them. Um, because like I said before, you can't be everything to everyone all the time. Mm -hmm. And first and foremost, you need to make sure that, that you are looked after. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you everyone for writing in. We hope that that answered some of your questions. If you still have more questions, as we say, we can make them into full episodes if we get enough requests for them. So feel free to keep writing in. We, If you do follow us on Instagram, we do pop up question boxes. We'll be probably doing it every month now that this is more consistent. So wait, look out for those or feel free to DM us and just say, hey, can you guys answer this question? We are more than happy to do that. We see you, we read them and we do our best to answer them um, for you guys. So I hope that was helpful. And Ames, thank you so much for joining me at 9.30 p.m. on a Tuesday night. Oh, thank you for joining me at 9.30 on a Tuesday night. (laughs) (laughs) Your time's my time. (laughs) Your house is my house. (laughs) All right, we are getting weird now. So guys, we'll sign (laughs) off. It's just a good time to go. <laughs> um, thank you so much for tuning in. Remember, we have an online psych practice called the Psych Collaborative. Go and check it out at the Psych Collaborative on Instagram and at the Psychology Sisters. Go and check us all out. We do post lots of stuff on there, lots of free tools, tricks, hints, strategies. And we will catch you next time with another deep dive episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you're not already, please follow us on Instagram at the psychology sisters. We are also now providing online psychological sessions for more information. Please follow us at the site collaborative. See you next time.